0: I've got to know my map. I've got to study it. Well, I share that with you because this morning we encounter a character in the Old Testament and the Gospel who wants nothing more than to send us down some bad paths, to veer us off course, a person who, like my lovely little British assistant, will sound convincing and sincere, but who will ultimately take us down dangerous roads into places we don't want to go. I'm talking, of course, about Satan. And in Genesis 3, he made his debut, and in Matthew 4, we see him up to his same old tricks with Jesus. What these passages give us is kind of like a roadmap to Satan's strategies. They're the strategies he uses to lead us off course and into ruts. Now, we see in both passages that he pretty much uses the same tactics. And these aren't all the tactics he's had, but they are, I think, his three most common the question we need to ask ourselves is, how well do we know his strategy? How well do we know this map? Because if the answer is not well, then we're going to find he can lead us down some very dangerous paths, paths and into places we never intended to go. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to take a look at Genesis 3. And I didn't find the page number in your Bible. Turn to Revelation. Keep going. You'll come back to Genesis, and that's where we're at. It's Genesis 3. And let's study this strategy. Now, before we jump in, I want to I pause for a second here. Because when we talk about the devil, C.S. Lewis, in his book, um, The Screwtape Letters, he points out that, that one of two things can happen to us. The first is we can become overly fascinated with the devil, to the point that it actually skews our theology. And we, of course, don't want that to happen. I used to have this very superstitious neighbor And she was a a very faithful Catholic woman, but very superstitious when it came to the devil. To the point that every time the devil was mentioned, or something evil in the world was mentioned, she would spit on the ground, cross herself, and say some prayer to a saint. I asked Deacon Bree uh, what this prayer was. She said, it was something to St. Michael, likely. And then she would rush home and go light a candle. I mean, it's utter superstition, right? We don't want to develop that kind of attitude towards Satan or become overly infatuated by him. The second thing that can happen, which I think is far more common in our tribe, in Anglicanism, is that we can have a total disregard for the devil. In my experience, it has been shocking to see how many people disbelieve in a literal devil, even though our liturgy, even this morning, reminds us that there is a literal devil out there in the world, and he is working against us. Many of us can simply Write them off as a superstitious idea, mere myth, something that we should just grow up about, as if evil only exists in us. But that's not true, nor is it a good posture for us to assume. Lewis points out that both ideas are actually part of Satan's strategy. Both approaches lead us off course. So again, this is why it's important to study his map, his tactics. He has a strategy, and we need to know it. So let's look at this strategy. And right off the bat, we see in verse one there one of his big lures: duplicity. It says in verse one, "Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field of the field that the Lord God had made." Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever found it interesting that of all the creatures Satan could have took the form of, that he chose that of a serpent? I mean, if, if I were in his shoes, and I were trying to convince Eve that I was a good person when actually I was a bad guy, I don't know if I would choose a serpent. I'm not against snakes, it's just that they're not known as the friendliest creature out there in the animal kingdom, right? Okay, I mean, if I were the devil, and my wife has accused me of being a devil from here in, from time to time, I may have chosen something more along the lines of a cute, cuddly, eucalyptus-eating koala bear, Right? No one ever expects the koala bear to be the villain of a story. But here we have the form of a serpent. Where's the duplicity there? Well, here's what we need to know. Snakes in the ancient world didn't hold the stigma that they do today. In fact, serpents were symbols of power and wisdom and divinity. The Hebrew word here for serpent, Nehash, means shining one. So you see, Eve didn't see some grotesque, vicious snake. What Eve saw was something that looked powerful, wise, and glimmered, and glistened in the sun. But it was duplicitous, because behind that facade was a dangerous, destructive character. And that got me thinking, aren't we often deceived by duplicitous things that look powerful, and wise, and shiny, only later to find out just how destructive They really are. So you see, when Satan comes after us, he won't appear like a little red man with horns and a pitchfork, nor will his sinful diversions look ugly and wicked. No, 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 they'll appear beautiful and winsome. It's only after we've been hooked and lured away that we'll discover the true horror of it all. Bishop J.C. Ryle said it like this. He says, Satan does not come to us with hands black with filth, but with hands dyed with the color of heaven. Martin Luther said that the devil dresses sin in angelic robes and teaches his theology, masked from its diabolical perspective. It makes me think of a girl I once hired to be a nursery worker when I was doing ministry in Florida. She was a bright young lady studying at FSU. Her parents uh, were part of the church. She had a great future before her. But there was one thing that drew her from her faith, and that was the fraternal party scene. Satan sold her the good side of it all, and she loved the attention, the fun, the friends, the experiences, the, seeming, the seemingly liberation that she got from it all. You see, in high school, she was a rather shy girl, kind of a social outcast, but this new lifestyle gave her a new identity, one where she was fun and popular and attractive, and this really grabbed hold of her. By the time it got to my attention, she was already starting to experience the other side of things the hangovers, the ruined relationships, the guilt, the shame, the addiction, the destruction. I actually had to let her go because she wasn't safe to work with children. And very tragically, her story ends with me giving her last rites in a hospital bed from an overdose. Now, I know that's an extreme story, but sin, all sin, works that way. It starts out looking shiny and powerful, and wise, and fun, nobody starts down the devil's path saying, you know what, I really hope I wreck my marriage and my family by having an affair. I really hope I ruin my life by drinking too much alcohol. I really hope I throw away my faith by giving in to temptation over and over again. No, no, no. We always start down Satan's path by seeing things that look good. Satan dangles things that look powerful and attractive and advantageous. But what we need to remember is Satan is duplicitous. He likes to make bad things look good and good things look bad. That's exactly what he's doing here with Eve. He made God look bad and himself look good. And then he made God's commandment look bad and eating the fruit look good. The thing we need to remember is whenever Satan sells us something that is contrary to God's word and to his promises, there will always be an ugly side. We might not see it at the present moment, but we need to remember that the devil is duplicitous. It's his first trick. And this segues into his second tactic. He distorts the truth. Look back at Genesis 3. Satan said to the woman, Now did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice that Satan doesn't completely dismiss God's truth. Now, what does he do? He takes God's truth and he perverts it. He skews it with his lie. That's what Satan likes to do. He likes to take a generous helping of truth and then mixes it with his lie. But you know what they say, a half-truth is nothing less than a full lie. So let's look at his half-truths here. He said that Adam and Eve would not die. Now, did they die that day? No, not physically, but we we later see that they died spiritually, and then later we see that they died physically, which was never part of God's plan. He said that their eyes would be opened. Well, were their eyes opened? Technically, yes, they were open to sin, but they weren't open to more of God's goodness. He said that they would become like God. Did they become like God? Well, if we were to jump down to verse 22, we'd see that God himself acknowledges that Adam and Eve have become more like him, knowing good and evil. But the thing is, God isn't God because he knows good and evil. So that was also not entirely true. You see, distorted truth. He does the same thing to us today. He takes a little truth and perverts it with his lies. So what are some of the distorted truths he might try to sell us? Well, I thought of three that are quite common today. Here are some of the devil's lies to us. How about this one? God just wants you to be happy, right? There's a lot of truth in that. God wants you to be happy. What's wrong with that? God wants his people to experience joy and peace and contentment, right? Well, there's part of that that is true. But here's the thing. It's a byproduct. It's a result of a restored relationship with him. It's not God's main goal to make you happy. In fact, if, if the source of your happiness is taking you away from God, he doesn't want you to have that. it's taking you away from the true source of happiness. Half truth, a whole lie. How about this one? Live your truth. That's the mantra of today, right? You've got to live your truth. You got to be true to yourself. You got to be the person whom God created you to be. And there's some truth in there, but here's the thing. Our truth cannot supersede God's capital T truth. In fact, our truth that we live out is to be found in the one who reveals himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so if your truth is not in line with the capital T truth of Jesus, then you're not actually living out truth. So again, half truth, full lie. One more. Let God and let go. That one sounds particularly holy to me. I like that. Let God and let God. I think it actually started out with good intentions. On the surface, it's about surrendering one's will to the Lord. But what I find has happened over time is that this has turned into an excuse for Christian apathy and lethargic faith. As if, you know, we just need to let God take care of it all. We don't have to do anything. We're just called to sit around. But God has always invited us to be part of his mission. And the bad news is, that's not always going to be easy. So maybe the better truth would be, let God, let go, let God, and then follow where he leads. The point is, half-truths are still the devil's business. J.I. Packer said that the devil presents falsehood in such a way as to make it look like the truth. He mixes the truth with just enough of his own poisonous falsehood to make it palatable and yet deadly. Duplicity, distortion, and you know I love my alliterations, finally there's division. You know, one question about Genesis 3 that has been asked is, where was God when all of this was happening? And I think that's a reasonable question. Where was the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God when this was going on? Clearly he could have known this conversation was happening and intervened, right? Well, think about this from another perspective— Why didn't Eve call upon God? When the accuser came to her, why did she choose to confront him on her own? Now later we'll see that Adam wasn't too far off, but what the writer of Genesis initially wants us to think is that Eve was alone and isolated, and the devil waited until she was alone and isolated. And to compound matters, she chose to remain that way. This is precisely what the devil likes to do to us. He thrives in our isolation. When we're isolated from God and when we're isolated from one another. Because when we're the loneliest, we're the most vulnerable. And we're the easiest to deceive. Nobody in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, ever did well when they were isolated for a very long time. Nor will we. But the good news is, God has provided us with the resources that we need to ensure that we never need to be alone. And this church... This community, this body of believers, is one of the primary ways God intends to protect us from Satan's deception. However, like Eve, we've got to choose to participate in this community. You know, one of the big reasons, not the only or the primary, but one of the big reasons why we've started so many fellowship opportunities, the life groups and dinners before Wednesday night studies, is to foster stronger relationships within our church. The notion that the church is just some Sunday morning activity is complete nonsense. It is completely unbiblical, and it's actually detrimental to our spiritual health. God intends for this church community to be the focal point of our lives. We're to live and grow in community together. When the author of Hebrews later on tells us and implores us not to forsake the fellowship of believers, he's not warning us about not showing up to church on Sunday morning. It is far more significant than that. It entails recognizing the importance of this community as an integral part of our lives. You see, God gave us the church not for his benefit, but for our benefit. And one of those benefits is protection from Satan's lies and deceptions, keeping us on the same path together, making sure we're not being led astray. When we permit the adversary to divide and isolate us, we're opening ourselves to his deception allowing him to steer us away from the course. The devil wants us alone, and God gave us the church so that we don't have to be. So let's go back to that original question. What are some of Satan's tricks? Well, in a word, I think we could summarize this by saying deception. And as we look a little bit closer, we see three ways he deceives us. First, he makes sin look appealing and good. And then he destroys, distorts God's truth by mixing it with a subtle lie. And then finally, he waits to sell us these lies when we're alone and isolated and divided. That's his strategy. It started here in the garden. He tried on Jesus, and I guarantee he will do the same to us. And we need to be on our guard. So I want to end with one last question. How do we know if we've been led astray? If Satan is subtle... How do we know if we've begun the first steps down the wrong path? Well, that's what this season of Lent is all about. It's a season of looking at ourselves honestly in the mirror and asking, where have we been led astray this year? It's about pressing pause in life and shaking ourselves out of everyday habits and routines and looking at who we are, where we are, and what we've become, and then making the necessary course corrections through repentance. There's this wonderful play by Arthur Miller titled Death of a Salesman. I'm sure many of you have seen Death of a Salesman. It's very popular. And it's about a guy named Willie Lohman, who's a traveling salesman in the posh New England countryside. And throughout the play, Loman clearly is a man who doesn't know who he truly is. Right? And he falls prey to all of life's temptations, right? Success, money, power, image, and he overinflates what his sharp mind and slick tongue can produce. Sadly, at the end of the story, Loman loses his job and what he believes to be the respect of the community and his family. And in the end, he decides to take his own life hoping his family can cash in on the insurance policy. At his funeral, only his immediate family and two best friends show up. But his adult son, Biff, has a very striking line that summarizes Willie and the human condition quite well. He says, that man did not know who he was. He did not know who he was. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? Are you certain of the path that you're traveling down? Have you studied the map so that you won't be led astray? This is the gift of Lent. It's a mirror of honesty and of compassion. It's 40 days in which we can see ourselves for who we truly are and who we've become, a mirror that won't tell us what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Let's look closely into that mirror of Lent and strip away any of Satan's trappings. We've been invited to journey with Jesus to Easter morning. Let's make sure Satan doesn't lead us astray as we make our way to the resurrection. Amen.